So Money episode 1203, a conversation about money and ableism with author Emily Rapp Black. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. We hear ableist language all the time crippled economy. That's so lame. Like those are ableist words. And we don't think about it because, because people like CNN anchor people say them. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Sharabi. We're exploring financial issues at the intersection of ableism and money. If you are disabled in this country, physically, mentally, we know that comes with a host of challenges. And our country has many systemic problems when it comes to dealing with the disabled population, many, many inequities, particularly financial ones. Our guest today is Emily Rat Black, and she's going to help us explore this through her own personal journey of becoming an amputee at the young age of six. Emily is an American memoirist. Today, she's written multiple books. Her latest is called Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg. In addition to being a writer, Emily is also a scholar, a recipient of the Fulbright Scholarship. She was educated at Harvard, Trinity College in Dublin, St. Olaf College, and the University of Texas, Austin, where there too she was a Missioner Fellow. She's currently Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of California, Riverside, and she's a member of the Inequities in Healthcare Working Group. Her new book explores art and disability through the life of Frida Kahlo. Here's Emily Rapp Black. Emily Rapp-Black, welcome to So Money. Thank you for having me. And congrats on your forthcoming book out in uh, just a few weeks here. Uh, the new book you have is Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg. This is your fourth book? Yes, that's right. Correct. So you are a prolific author. I don't know prolific, but... Well, I would say so. I mean, most people don't even write one book. You've written four and New York Times bestselling at that. You are an academic, a scholar, a teacher. We're going to talk about your life's work, but also want to talk about what led you here and um, what has been often the jumping point, at least for your first memoir, was sort of going back to your childhood. Mm-hmm. That was the memoir you wrote called Poster Child. Mm -hmm. And this was about um, your life as an amputee, realizing at six years old that you're going to have to go through this radical transformation. Take us back, if you would, to that period in your life. And specifically, the question I have is when you learn the news, and by the way, at six, you were also, I believe, it's called Poster Child because you were made the poster child for the March of Dimes. You lost your leg. And so suddenly you have to grapple with this public sort of um, em- embrace of, of your new body. But at the same time, I'm sure there were other feelings and other learnings at a, such a young age. So take us back to that and talk about the feelings that you had about yourself and your place in the world at six years old when you discovered uh, that you were going to look different. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think when I was six, I didn't really 
thankfully, understand the full implications and impact of what that would mean for my life. I mean, my daughter is seven and um, she's so matter of fact about bodies and is always saying things like, oh, mommy's leggy, you know, and she wants to show it to people. I'm like, it's not a party trick, but still, I mean, she's like, (laughs) she's not weirded out, right? So when I was poster child, I actually loved it because I was like, oh, I'm all this attention. I'm so special. This is great. Like, what could be wrong with this? And then, of course, I hit puberty and I was like, everything is wrong with this. (laughs) Not that, you know, it's like that everyone feels only with an additional sort of, you know, clunky wooden leg to go along with it. So, you know, I think that was, um, I had a, uh, a really happy childhood, actually. Um, my parents never had a lot of money. And in fact, my dad worked two jobs to pay for my prosthetic limbs, which were not that advanced, but they were still expensive for them, um, even though they had insurance. So I don't know, it was a very sort of rural, Western, lots of ranches and horses and, you know, lots of hard work, physical work. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed that. I was always... Um, I never felt like my physical body was limited. There's certain things I couldn't do, but of course that's true of everybody, right? Not everyone's going to be a hurdler, for example, or, you know, a gymnast, but I felt like I could, I figured out how I wanted to do things and then I did them. It was more the emotional stuff that came later that was harder to unpack and unravel. And was that the, uh, the impetus for poster child was sort of exploring those emotions and coming to terms with them. Tell us about what, why you wanted to tell, what was the story you really wanted to tell? I wanted to talk about, you know, there's, it's true of a lot about books about disability. There's, there are two tracks, the sort of sad, really like tiny Tim ish kind of, Oh, look at the happy, but really depressing looking disabled person. And then there's the athlete right? Those are the two sort of like polar opposite narratives that we're used to hearing like, oh, poor person or oh, wow, extraordinary person. And I was like, there are plenty of people who just live their lives in different bodies and just get on with it. Like I, I felt really pushed to be on the athletic side. That was what I chose for some time. Um, but that also isn't sustainable. So I wanted to write a book that was basically like, this is what it's like to live a life in a, in a different body. And it's not so different or tragic than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there is this additional struggle and a lot of it's financial, a lot of it's emotional, a lot of it's societal because we have live in a very ableist culture. But I mean, you know, that's, it's, um, I wanted to track that middle ground. Well, at the intersection of emotion and money, uh, I was reading about how you wrote, like there was a point where, you know, you couldn't gain much weight. You were told to sort of try to not gain weight, right? Because otherwise you'd have to be in an in a wheelchair. And so what was that like? Cause I, I feel like that's a, yeah, that's, that's rough. That's a lot of pressure. Well, I mean, you know, when I wanted to have children and the second time I was pregnant, actually, I went into the leg guy, the prosthetist. And I said, you know, I'm pregnant, whatever. And he's like, well, you don't want to get too big. Or you'd be like a, it'll be like a pogo stick. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like it was this what, is like, who said this? <laughs> a, a professional, a medical professional oh, no. in 2013. And I'm like, mm. rude. <laughs> I talked about that actually in the book and yeah I mean they were like basically if you grow out of this leg you will not you have to get another leg made um in places like the UK uh the National Health Service just covers that for pregnant women they just get a pregnancy leg I didn't have that so I was super super careful um and I I did not gain a lot of weight I gained just enough <laughs> to like make a baby but not enough to be kicked off my prosthetic limb. So, but yeah, that's like another level of stress because I don't have $50,000 lying around. Yeah. I mean, talk a little bit about the expense that goes along with this. Uh, You brought up the UK. There are 
sadly, you know, as developed as we are as a country, we we are not, we are so behind on some really basic stuff, including taking care of our citizens, including our disabled citizens. So tell us about the, and you have good health care. Oh, I have great health care. No, yeah, great health care. Yeah, I mean, and my mom and dad are always emphasized to me like you can never just not be covered. You have to because I have a pre-existing condition. No one will take you. If no one will take me, I can't get the prosthetic that I need to do my work. So then I can't work. But then it's my fault for not working because I'm not trying hard enough. I mean, it's just it's just lots of ripple effects there in terms of our social um, inequities and deficiencies, frankly. And yeah, so the average leg, and I don't have a super state of the art one, is about fifty thousand. So I am out of pocket for the like the new ones, which I haven't. I don't have new ones made that often, like five grand, three to five grand, and then every couple months it's a couple grand for like parts and stuff that gets worn out. So, but you know, so the top of the a line, luxury car, <laughs> right? More than a luxury car. Yeah. All the prosthetic limbs that are, you know, that celebrities have or something like millions of dollars. Like they, they take a graft of your skin. They, they match it exactly. They have these computer knees. Like I always had like a little wooden leg. So I just want it to function so that I can be active and do the things I do and be athletic without having to run a marathon. So mine are actually on the lower end, I would say of pricing. Mm-hmm. And still a lot. You know, in some ways, when you when this happened, you were six and versus maybe somebody who was 36, you've mm-hmm. had a lot of years to sort of, uh, you know, get used to this and um, have it feel normal. Although I don't I don't know how to how it feels. I don't want to assume that you wake up every day feeling normal mm-hmm. or whatever normal means. What are some things that you still feel like you missed out on or this has maybe been a roadblock for you? Um. <laughs> You know, I would say that probably the, what I would, uh, first of all, let me answer the normal question. I definitely feel like this body is the one, only one I've ever known. I mean, now it's getting to be like in my forties, I'm like, what's happening? I don't know this body. Why? Why? Right? Oh, please. That's a, that, that is very normal indeed. Yes. So, so no, it, it does. It's, it's not something that I think about consciously until I have to. And then it's like a massive pain in the butt. Right. Um, but I will say that I, it's not so much, I have to say I always wonder what it would be like to be a man with a prosthetic limb. Like, I think my life would be really different if I had been a man. Just because, as in most cases, <laughs> you know, prosthetics were first made for men and then for women. Uh-huh. Uh, I used to go into prosthetic clinics and there would be pictures of men everywhere and none of women. And I once asked someone, I said, why aren't there any, you know, female athletes? Because I knew some. I, you know, I was one. And they said, well, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> Just like, okay. oh, this, is a, this is a whole Pandora's box, right? I've right, talked exactly. to many women who like, okay. are in the drug and medicine field and, and you're right. There's a whole, like mm-hmm. so much sexism that goes into effect, like with all the trials and what even is on the market. Yeah. That's a whole other show, oh, but sure. um, that's interesting that you picked up on that quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, I also had to wear a man's foot until I was about 20 because they didn't make feet for little girls. And of course, I'm actually pretty tall, but I have elf feet, as I call them. I like size six feet, and I'm almost five nine. So super <laughs> tiny feet, and then this massive like man foot. So two pairs of shoes. My parents had to buy two pairs of shoes um, so that I could walk in shoes. I mean, it's just like, come on, you know, that's changed. But yeah. Yeah. You wrote a book recently, your your fourth book, which I want to talk about. You're so pro- you are prolific. I, I I will say that again. Um the book is called again Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg. I ha- honestly didn't know Frida Kahlo had a 
a disability. I didn't know that she didn't have a leg. Yeah, no, a lot of people don't. They think of her as like the woman. In the I knew that she had a unibrow. <laughs> they didn't know anything else. <laughs> a big flower. Yeah, I mean, that was um, fine for her. I mean, as a child who had a unibrow, I love Frida Kahlo uh, for rocking that. <laughs> yeah, I had been really interested in her from from a young age. Like, I really like saw a photograph or a painting that she had done called "The Broken Column," where her basically her whole spine is like a railroad track. And I was in a lot of back braces as a kid as well and in traction. And so she, you know, was also an artist, right? And that appealed to me. Um, so I read her journal when it came out. And so when I went to the Casa Azul, they had just showcased her corsets and her leg for the first time behind glass with like security guards looking very stern and ready to scold. And I just kind of had this eureka moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I feel, I feel really weird right now. <laughs> And I was pregnant with my second child and my first child had died like a year before of a, a horrible terminal illness. So I had a kind of emotional tornado. And and so I started writing about it. And that's it became an essay and then it became the book. What most did you connect with her in terms of her journey and her life and what you were living? I think that she had a strong sense of privacy, which people never think about someone who does self-portraits or memoirists. And I think I share that with her. Obviously, I can't ask her because she's not only living, but I write memoir as a way of maintaining privacy because people will make assumptions about my life. And if I say, here's a book about it, then then the conversation stops and I can maintain my own <laughs> privacy. Mm-hmm. And she wrote, she did self-portraits and people were like, oh, you know, she's just like, a, like public striptease kind of thing. But that's not what it was. It was basically saying, like, I'm going to control the narrative because it's the thing I can control. And she did suffer a lot of physical pain. Uh, I did as a child, not so much as an adult. And she she created despite that, not because of it. So people are often like, oh, you know, pain is a muse. And it's like, no, it isn't. <laughs> pain is just pain. But she found a way. And so I really responded to that because I feel like a lot of my life has been finding a way, whatever that yeah. looks like. And, and so that... Not, I don't want to say inspired me, but it made me feel like I had like a role model. And then also she kind of had this fantastic physical presence that was distracting. And um, she was really into fashion. And so am I, which you can't tell from what I'm wearing. But like, you know, the, the outward appearance was a way of, of, of passing in a world that, you know, just is very dismissive of anyone with a different body. And mm-hmm. I did at an early age. Be funny, dress well, be smart, be as pretty as you can. And then maybe you can pass. Well, work. And then you do all those things, right? Yeah. You sell it all those things. And then don't you feel like, what's at the end of that? Yeah. No, I know. That's it. That's that's kind of what Poster Child is about. It's like that crash and burn moment where I was like, first, I can't keep this up. It's like too much work. <laughs> and secondly, what's at the end? Like, what's the end goal? And ex- self-acceptance and sort of coming out as, as a disabled person had never been something that even crossed my mind. So that was a massive sort of like emotional iceberg, if you will, that I had to ride out for a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, it's I think, you know, I have a I teach a lot of writing students with disabilities and I have a class right now. And we were talking about disability doulas, which is basically someone who like someone like me who's had an artificial leg for 40 some years and someone who loses their leg in a freak accident. Like how do those how does that person support the other person like as a mentor and saying like, here's some ideas that how to advocate for yourself in the healthcare system, or here's some things that work for me and all those things. So there's some dialogue happening about that. Um, but you know, it's still, I mean, we hear ableist language all the time, 
crippled economy. I'm paralyzed from fear. That's so lame. Like those are ableist words. And we don't think about it because, because people like CNN anchor people say them. It's so right. Funny. Yeah. And I've probably said that stuff. Me too, dude. I say lame. I'm like, that's so I lame. I say lame all the time. <laughs> well, what would, um, you know, and maybe was there a parallel between Frida Kahlo's journey to self-acceptance and your own? Um, and if not, what would be, how would you characterize your coming to terms with it? Was there a, was there an experience, like a, a moment or a series of moments? it's just an evolution. Like, I don't know if I can pinpoint one thing. I mean, I definitely think having a kind of like borderline nervous breakdown in my twenties was like to try to accept it was a, a moment, um, a big moment. I think I also think just with age, like it just things mellow out and you just realize that the world was actually never a hundred percent open to you as promised. <laughs> and you come to terms with that and it helps with other things. So I think more for me that, that it's become a kind of springboard for other things in the world that I'd like to see change, like sexism, racism, um, homophobia, like all of those things are interrelated. Um, they intersect in many ways. And I also just think Frida Kahlo was, um, you know, she's definitely has this iconic status. She's on socks. She's on magnets. She's a, one of the most recognizable faces in the world, if not the most. And, you know, people didn't really know a lot about her life, but they thought they did. And that appeals to me a lot. Because I think that's very um, that's synonymous with a lot of people think they know me because they've read my books, but they know that narrative, they know that story, and that's controlled, and it's crafted, and it's careful, and it's different than who I am just in my body in an everyday situation. I was going to ask, although I think you pretty much answered it, but if there's more to, to say, I'm going to ask it again, just the correlation or connection between your life's struggles and pains and the creative and professional choices that you've made mm -hmm. in your life. And, you, you know, it, looking at your bio, you're an, you're very curious, you're an academic, you're a Fulbright scholar. What is that relationship? Was it, I mean, part of it I hear is, you know, you want to be able to control your story. Part of it is pain is just pain. And then there's, you know, your professional life is, is like something else. But is there more to be said about that? I mean, I always thought, and I don't know if this is, you know, I've read Frida Kahlo's diary and some of her letters, and I don't know how, I think her sense of community was more of a radical, like political community. Mine was not, but I think it comes down to community. So I grew up in an intergenerational sort of intergenerational, I don't know, nest, if you will. So my dad was a pastor. So everyone was a different, like there's so many older people. I loved hanging out with older people and I loved like being with the little kids. I just, I had this sort of scope of the lifespan. Right. And I think, I think that's really served me in the professional choices I've made because in this particular sort of Swedish Protestant <laughs> culture that I grew up in, it's all about helping people and being of service. And so I really think that writing is that it serves people. It's like you write a book you wish you'd had to read when you were going through the thing that you're going through. And someone gives you a book where at the end, like everybody dies, which is very helpful. <laughs> yeah. You know, you want to write something that's going to provide solace to the person who's sitting on the floor of the hospital room and like feels completely alone and not seen mm -hmm. or heard and just so isolated. So that's kind of why I write books. And I think that it has to do with the community that I was born into and with Frida Kahlo, she was she was a very she was very provocative in her work. Like she did things that people didn't like that no one had done. Um, she talked about issues that nobody wanted to address. She busted through stereotypes. And I think a lot of that was just that she had aligned herself with a kind of radical community of artists and thinkers 
mm-hmm. probably encouraged and emboldened her to do that. Where would you like to see the thinking shift when it comes to issues related to ableism? Or, you know, we talked about some of the words that we use that are not helpful in society. And we've talked about the healthcare financial toll in your case, and and probably I'm sure a lot of cases where your needs are not covered. But where do you think we need to shift the conversation? Or what are some questions that you want more people to be asking in this space? You know, if, if Frida Kahlo had that sort of radicalism in her life that was supportive, what is the radicalism that we need today? I mean, I think it boils down to this sort of singular fact, which is that everyone will have a disability if they live long enough. So you're either a decade or a random disease or an accident away from having one. And so this kind of false separation, like people say to me a lot, like, oh, I couldn't do what you do. It's like, yeah, you could because you'd have to. Otherwise, what are you going to do? Nothing. No, like that's not what people do. People don't just lie down and just not do anything. Um, You know, it's like bodies change. Bodies are different just because a body uses a wheelchair, a body, you know, uses seeing eye dog doesn't make that person less valuable or less, you know, capable. It's just that they're not, their capabilities aren't like everybody else's. That's a positive thing. So I think a lot of it has to start with the kind of this, people are saying like, oh, like having a disability is an absolute tragedy. And that's just not true. It's a, certainly an identity shifting moment and it's not easy. And I wouldn't say, yay, let's do that. It's not like something I would suggest as like a resilience building exercise, but it's also not tragic. And if you think of it as like something that you're going to have to contend with at some point in your life, then kind of get on board with like valuing all bodies because, you know, someday you're going to need those services and you're going to be like, what happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Could have been busy fighting if that was all these years, you know? So, well, you, you think some of that reckoning would have happened in the last 14 months where with COVID, you know, the people who survived COVID even long-term disability, some of them, you know, then, and still we don't know what the repercussions are going to be for people. And sometimes extreme things have to happen Mm -hmm. broadly in order for sweeping change. And you're seeing that a little bit on issues pertaining to race in this country and family care uh, that were, those were like the fractures that were only more amplified, I think, in the last year mm-hmm. because of the things that we had to go through. And so I hope that's not what we have to do to ex- understand exactly what you just said, that we all are going to experience a disability at probably at some point if we live long enough. Mm-hmm. Are you hopeful that we'll get there? I mean, I think it's kind of the final frontier in some sense, because it's also a very like you can be any color, any class, any age and fall into the disability camp with us. Welcome. But so I think it's hard to kind of to focus the agenda in a way that other movements have been able to do. So I am hopeful. I mean, I I am hopeful. And then, you know, every once in a while I'm in the grocery store and I'm having a conversation, usually with an an older man who's asking me questions. And I'm just like, I really just know this conversation has to What are they asking you? Oh, what what annoys you? Tell me, tell me, tell me what's so annoying. I mean, it's like so many things. Yeah. It's like. Really? I probably asked an annoying question. Well, I'm sure I have too. It's like, you know, <laughs> conversations in elevators. Like, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? Like, you're in an elevator. You've just met this rando, right? And then they're like, oh, do you shower? Do you shower wearing it? I'm like, okay, now we're talking about me what? taking a shower. Like, what? Oh, yeah, all the time. So many times. Now when I wasn't naked, I'm not sure I like where this is going. Right. Or how far does it go up? I was asked that at a faculty symposium, which I can say now that I have tenure. From across the room, two dudes shouting, how far does it go up? I'm like, and I came around and I was like, 
Oh my well, God. And I said, I shouted back. I was like, you'd have, the only way to know that is if I took my clothes off, which I don't want to do. <laughs> but yeah, those kinds of questions I get asked all the time. Or I'll be all like, you know, I lock with the limp. Someone will like limp up to me like, hey, what's up with your bum leg? I'm like, why are you doing that? What? <laughs> like, it's a joke, you know, or like, hey, yeah, if someone's an intruder, this all the time. If there's an intruder, you'll have your leg, you can take it off and hit the person because that's going to work. Or that's your instinct. Right. Or yeah. you have a 105 year old grandfather who lost his leg. You remind me of him. Oh, thanks. Or, um, you know, this amputee like person. I'm like, no, we don't all know each other. Like there's many, there's like 8 million of us. Like I don't mm-hmm. know that person. <laughs> it's just so funny. It's funny, but it's also sad, you know? So. Well, earlier you talked about these two extremes where there's like the athlete, the Olympian, and then there's, or the war hero. Right. And then there's like, you, tiny Tim, and you want to be a voice for the many who are in the middle. Mm-hmm. Who else is doing the good work? Who's out? Who else is on the front lines? Is there? Are there communities? Are there resources? What? Where? Where should people turn to? Yeah, I mean, I I do. I turn to writers, <laughs> uh, Julian Vice, uh, Meg Day, Molly McCauley Brown. There are there's a, a series in the New York Times um, called Disability was like a series of, of essays around becoming disabled was the first one. So Rosemary Garland Thompson, who's one of the architects of disability studies, an academic discipline that started a few decades ago and has gained traction since. That, that, that collection of essays or op-ed pieces was compiled into a, um, an anthology called Nothing About Us Without Us, which was an early disabled rights mantra. Um, when they were shouting in the streets um, and protesting in the 60s and 70s. So that's a great way to start because I learned about a lot of different kinds of conditions and embodiments that I didn't wasn't aware of. Um, so that would be a place to start just for someone who's never thought about it before. And there are a lot of great resources. Uh, Beauty is a Verb is a great sort of collection of poems and essays. Uh, so there's definitely work happening that works in that space still needs to be diversified in terms of race and class and sexual orientation. But I think that that's also, it's kind of a slow moving, moving process because publishing is still very white. So, but I, I look to writers. That's, that's, um, oh, Ilya Kaminsky, a uh, deaf writer, um, poet. There's just a lot, there's a lot. And people, it, I think part of it has to do with social media because people are just like showing their bodies in a real way also while curating a particular brand of some kind. But, you know, it's like that never would have, ex- obviously there was no internet when I was growing up, thank God. <laughs> like, but, you know, no one was going to be showing pictures. You know, you, you just didn't do that. And now that's so much a part of the culture. People are claiming their different bodies just because that's part of the culture now. Well, so like that gentleman told you, we don't want to put a disabled woman on a poster. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. And yet... Yeah, we do. Actually, we need to see that. What are the untold stories that you have yet to write? Because I think you've got more books in you and <laughs> you're really you're really talented and funny. And I hope you will continue to write um, important books. But what's uh, what, what do you think is next? Well, I want to write- know that's a horrible question to ask an no, author okay, who hasn't even come out yet. Her latest. But- I want to do more like writing for TV. I have a couple of writing partners. We've done a few sort of, you know, trying to send things out. I love that. It's super collaborative. I want to, I'm working on a book called I Would Die If I Were You, which is a collection of essays that kind of covers these topics in a humorous way. And it's also about craft and what I've learned about teaching, about writing from teaching. Um, And then I want to work on a novel that I've been like 
working on for a really long time, which is about is sort of a, a woman has an experience of the afterlife while she's still living. So there are a lot of projects. <laughs> but that's like that, that that show Soul, that movie Soul. Yeah, Have you seen yeah. that with your daughter? It's a real favorite in our house. Yeah. It's so, so existential and deep. I don't know. But my do- my kids love it. Yeah, I know. Kids kids like that stuff because they know they it's, get it. You know? Yeah. So those are those my nice sort of upcoming projects, the ones that I'm working on. And in addition to having my business and um, teaching and all the things. Yeah, you're just a little busy. But in the meantime, I hope everybody will check out your latest Frida Kahlo and my left leg. Emily Rapplack, thanks for joining. Thanks, Marnish. Thank you so much to Emily for joining us. Her book is available on pre-order and that link is on the So Money Podcast website. You can learn more about her at Emily Rapp Black. That's Emily Rapp, R-A-P-P, Black.com. See you back here on Wednesday when we're talking about the financial benefits of equal shared parenting, important advice for divorced couples. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and spending part of your day with me. I hope your day is so money. So money.